0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our weekly webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very honored to have with me, John Maveke. John, welcome to Radio Evolve.
1: Thanks, Thomas. It's always great to uh, talk to you.
0: John, if I may introduce you to our audience, as much as this is still necessary. You're an associate professor at the University of Toronto in psychology, cognitive science, Buddhist psychology, Amongst your academic interests, uh, there are a lot wisdom, mindfulness, meditation, relevance realization, general intelligence, rationality. You are kind of famous in some corners of the Internet for a YouTube series that uh, where 50 YouTubes uh, every one for one hour called "The Awakening from the Meaning Crisis." And this is also how I came across you and how I found out about your work. And uh, you wrote a couple of books. One is uh, Zombies in the Western Culture, A 21st Century Crisis. So I think that your work is tremendously important and uh, uh, it opened up a lot for me. And I am just very curious to talk with you What is it that you're trying to do? Obviously, you are a rigorous scientist. You have a strong uh, scientific background as a cognitive scientist. You are a meditator. You are a practitioner also of martial arts. There's something that your work seems to be about that I would like to ask you and also to our audience to hear more about. If I may ask this broad question, uh, what is it that you try to achieve
1: here? Um, so that's a very interesting question. And it sort of bridges between the personal and then my personal existential project, I guess you'd put it and and my, uh, my cultural project, the way I'm trying to, I like the way you put it, uh, uh, intervene in the culture. Um, because I, I think that's where the issues I'm concerned about uh, most properly find their, their locus. Um, so uh, I, I maybe started at uh, the, the first poll and then moved towards the second. Um, I recently read, uh, with a very good friend of mine, Dan Chiappi. I really recently read Camus' The Fall. Uh, sorry, The Plague. I'm going to read The Fall right now, but I, I, I read The Plague. Uh, uh, the reasons for reading it seemed wildly appropriate. <laughs> People trapped in, in a pandemic, um, or at least a, a, a plague. Um, and there's a character in there, Tarou, and uh, I believe that's his name, And uh, he said something that uh, really resonated with me. And uh, uh, I hope I get a chance to explain it because I I can see how it might sort of put some people off. But he said, uh, I want to know how to be a saint without God. That's the whole project I'm up against. Um, And of course he's doing that in a situation where his life is at risk and he's losing people around him. And, and, and the city, I forget the name of the city. The city is, it's suffering the plague, literally, I think, the bubonic plague. And, and, and it is slowly, the the, hum, the humanity is being drained out of the city by the plague. <clears throat> now, of course, uh, you know, we have the exigent COVID and how that's impacting on people. And that made it particularly salient for me. But I I'd, I I'd already heard that quote from Camus for quite a while, and I was trying to understand it. And I I, I think it's... Apparent uh, in a demographic sense that, and of course, it's been commented by Nietzsche onward in a philosophical sense that the allegiance to, you know, uh, the Abrahamic God as the grounding of Western culture is is eroding, um, and that I'm not making a moral comment on Christianity when I say that. Uh, I, it would, like, uh, the, the, the lack of, me- you know, the church membership is declining. It's even starting to decline in the United States. Uh, more and more people are declaring themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S-s, meaning they have no uh, religious belief or formation. And um, the, 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 the drifting away of uh, sort of a Christian normativity even in popular media, has been accelerated greatly. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, a lot of history behind that. And I go into that history, I, I hope, in sufficient detail uh, to make a, make a plausible case for that. Now, some people may say, well, good about that. Great, you know, <laughs> let's get rid of that. You know, if I don't believe in Santa Claus. I don't believe in leprechauns. and Isn't that a great thing? Um, and that's where I, I point them to the great prophet of this, Nietzsche. Uh, because this passage from Nietzsche also made a huge impact on me. The madman runs into the marketplace and he proclaims that God is dead. Notice that he doesn't say God doesn't exist. He doesn't say that. And people should pause and reflect on that. He he carries with it the strong implication that God was once alive in some important way. Um, and and, 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 And it's interesting who the madman is speaking to. He's not speaking to the believers. He's speaking to the atheists who sort of titter and go, of course, (laughs) silly man, we knew that. And then he tries to make them understand. He said, how did we do this? How did we wipe away the sky? And now we are forever falling. And how could we become worthy of this? Now, I don't think that what Nietzsche thought was there was a metaphysical entity, God, and then that entity ceased to exist. What Nietzsche's talking about is that there was a a reality there that was functioning in powerful ways, what Berger calls the sacred canopy. Um, All cultures have this. In fact, there's deep connections between cultivation, culture, cult, um, right? Cultists, all of these things are deeply connected. Um, Many, many cultures don't even have a separate word for religion. And the idea here is that that Berger's notion is that notion of God and the attendant worldview provided us with a sacred canopy, and that canopy, I argue, homed, gave gave a place for and nurtured and natured practices. What I often call an ecolo- ecologies of practices, or a whole network of living practices, and that's how God was alive, I think, for Nietzsche. Living practices, so that, whereby people could overcome perennial threats of self-deception, despair, destructive self, and other destructive behavior. And they could practice the often necessarily, at least indispensably, symbolic behavior that would allow them to enhance their sense of connectedness to themselves, to each other, to the world, be able to explore and reflect upon the meaning in their lives, the depths of realities that they were able to come into right relationship with. And without that sacred canopy, that all fragments, and that's the death of God. Now, I myself went through an intensified version of that. I was brought up in a in, in a very fundamentalist form of Christianity. Um, not only my nuclear family, but my extended family on my mother's side, and um, it, it there's a lot that I'm grateful for for that up from that upbringing, um, but to put a, a very long story short, uh, it traumatized me and it's taken me uh, quite a bit of time and therapy and other work to get free from that. Uh, uh, and also to get free from the, 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 negative attachment to it, which is to hate it and fight it and be, you know, sort of a militant atheist, which I did do at, at periods of my life um, and come out of that on the other side, hopefully with a, a much more balanced lens on what's happening. And so I I take that slogan as uh, as a personal one, how, how to be a saint without God, because I think that Nietzsche's response to the death of God is inadequate. Um, I don't think he gives, I think there's an excellent, he makes excellent points, but I don't, don't think he really, although he he tried with also Sraak Barathustra who replaced the Bible, but I don't think he and others, and I don't think the secular, relig, the pseudo-religious secular Uh, uh, you know ideologies of communism on the left and you know and fascism on the right or or consumerism you know these we have overwhelming evidence that they either drench the world in blood or they leave us deeply dissatisfied and most people are experiencing that more and more so I have found a deep resonance between and I didn't realize this I, I mean like many people I was egocentric I still am I just I'm just talking about this particular aspect Uh, And I was just concentrating on my own pain and trying to uh, figure out uh, how to um, deal with this coming uh, away from, um, you know, my sky was wiped clean. My sacred canopy was gone. Um, And when I turned to the world, it didn't seem to have anything other than than the wisps of Christianity uh, to offer initially. And then I encountered two things. I encountered the figure of Socrates that gave me an alternative sage um, and the project with the cultivation of wisdom and trying to come into right relationship with the deepest aspects of reality took a deep hold on me. And then I encountered through practice uh, Siddhartha Kutama, um and that uh, mindfulness and then also related things like Tai Chi you mentioned other practices. And I started to see a, what looked to me like the beginnings of a viable way forward, and at about the same time, uh, although philosophy for decades had never talked about wisdom, and I had done two degrees in philosophy, and the topic of wisdom was never discussed, other than uh, Introduction to Ancient Philosophy or something like that. But then in cognitive science, the topics of wisdom and meaning um, were coming more and were coming more and more to the fore. And people were starting to talk about mindfulness. And so my career as a cognitive scientist started to integrate with uh, this personal project. And I started to see how they could go together. And then what happened was I realized that, that when I made those connections, it, it sparked a light in so many of my students' eyes that almost took me by surprise. And then more and more and more I developed this. And they brought to me their concerns and a dialogue formed. And I, 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 I kept pursuing this integration of the cognitive science, the cognitive psychology, the philosophy, the history uh, with all of these uh, uh, practices, mindfulness practices, uh, therapeutic practices, ration, uh, rationality cultivation practices, mindful movement practices. And now most recently, um, and of course, this is what your listeners might be most interested in. You know, dialogical pra- practices, again, inspired once again by uh, the Socratic tradition. And so I'm trying to understand that machinery of wisdom, the, cult- the aspiration to wisdom, the cultivation of enhanced meaning in life. What's going on? Why do we need it? And, and, and my ultimate goal is to empower people to as i sometimes as i said in the in the series to awaken it's not it's not a matter of just a belief it's 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 a it's a project of deep individual transformation um to awaken from the meaning crisis but that individual change in consciousness makes no sense without a corresponding and deeply partnered uh transformation of culture because that is where the kind of where ecologies and practices have to be honed in a sacred canopy. And that's what culture is. Culture is how, I, I like Geertz's idea of culture as a meta-meaning system that shapes us and the environment together. So all our particular specific meaning-making machinery, legal, moral, aesthetic, existential, get grounded in uh, and made viable to us. And so trying to change the cognitive grammar without correspondingly trying to change the cultural grammar I think is a mistake, a fundamental mistake, and so I, I want to. I don't want people to suffer the loss of agency, and the, you know, there's clear symptoms throughout our culture. We talked about it in the zombie book, and I've talked about it many places that are we we are fundamentally sick. And this is not. I'm not making the moral critique that Western civilization is the source of all evil. I'm saying that people are. There, there's, you know, increase in suicide, n- uh, mental health issues, uh, loneliness, addiction epidemics. People are exiting reality and getting addicted to the virtual world. There's earthsatz religions like you, the superhero religion, right? And, and, and there's, but there's positive symptoms, the mindfulness revolution, all these emerging, and you and I talked about this, all these emerging communities of, of authentic dialogue, transformative dialogue. Um, The the revival of of, of stoicism um, as a wisdom, cultivation, culture, and practice. Our our culture is struggling to try and reduce uh, the suffering. And and I think that struggle gets misplaced. I'll just say a couple more things and then I'll I'll stop talking. Um, It gets misplaced onto a level of cognition and a level of social organization that is actually misplaced for addressing this issue. We are trying to solve this problem by and large at the level of the market, uh, which is not the right place to try and solve this problem, or at the political level and increasingly those two are intermeshed um, and that and that political level is right has degenerated into largely adversarial processing rather than a self-correcting democratic process um, and So democracy is in some sense also not doing well right now. And again, that's just demographically to speak about it and talk about how people's attitudes towards um, uh, the democratic process seem to be changing. And we can perhaps get into it, but that, that level is just not the right level. So I talk about stealing the culture. I talk about affording people ecologies of practices that will bring about the, the, these cognitive interventions and helping afford communities that home these practices and then communities of communities um, so that we give people what Stephen Baxter calls a culture of awakening um, that will transform how they live in the world. And my model here is um, the early Christian church, you know, the Church of St. Paul, who invented being a missionary. I don't see myself as a missionary, but I have a mission. Um, I guess technically that makes me a missionary. Uh, but he went out and he founded all these communities with ecologies of practices and a new way of seeing and being in the world, the way of agape, the way of following agape and following the logos uh, in a way that stitched together uh, the prophetic tradition and the philosophical tradition profoundly. And, and that had a, had a way of growing both as an organization and as a culture. And eventually the culture steals the Roman empire from what it, it looked like it, it, it's, you know, uh, unassailable uh, political and socioeconomic overlords. And the culture changed and shifted. Um, and that's how, uh, you know, we moved to another period um, in the history of European and then eventually what's been called Western civilization. And so I want to steal the culture. I want to give people, um, what I call a religion. That's not a religion. I want to give them all of this machinery without making that, without trying to force them into the two alternatives that I think most people who suffer from the crisis have rejected. Um, and one is a return to the traditional religions? Um, and that's not, that's not out of hostility. I have a lot of respect for people who are able to find wisdom and meaning in the established traditions. And maybe, uh, you know, Christianity will be able to reformulate itself. I don't see that happening fast enough, although it's happening in some people that I get to talk to. Um, but for most of the nuns, that's not an option. It's, it's not that they disbelieve. It's not that they're atheists. They find the traditional religions uh, irrelevant. And that's much more important for the life of religion than finding it false. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, there are right people, many people reject the political arena because of the way pseudo-religious ideologies have drenched the world in blood and continue to do so. And so trying to come up with a community that affords, a community of communities that afford, as you say, uh, that afford um, ecologies of practices that can vary, but can also nevertheless connect with each other to create a culture of awakening from the meaning crisis is exactly, I guess, what I'm trying to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank thank you. There's something uh, also in the way you laid all this out right now, which seems to be central—that you talk about the meaning crisis, and you started with Nietzsche and the nihilism of our of our age. But you talk about the meaning crisis as a cognitive scientist. So, the, yeah. and if you talk about culture, one of the basic foundations of our culture is that our culture is based on a scientific paradigm that yeah. is basically the language that we relate to each other. We can have private worlds all time, but the real world that we connect with is based culturally on the scientific paradigm. So you are deeply established in the scientific paradigm. The question I think is fair to ask, can a cognitive scientific, scientist say something meaningful about meaning?
1: <laughs> yeah, we can i mean uh, cognitive psychology and and right which is the mother and ongoing mother of cognitive science also po- cognitive science is well also philosophy uh, artificial intelligence right so what i'm saying is there, there was something called the cognitive revolution in the 50s mm-hmm. right I and mean, the cognitive revolution is the, you know this nascent beginning of linguistics Chomsky literally invents li- the discipline of linguistics. You get cognitive psychology, you get the emergence of artificial intelligence, uh, right? And you get a, a huge philosophical change. And all of these things are, are, this is the field of fields within which cognitive science is operating. <clears throat> so most, co- like, most cognitive scientists have training, uh, expertise in one of, one of, the, one of those fields. I have, I have expertise as a cognitive psychologist. I am a cognitive psychologist at the University of Toronto. Right. And then, then they also learn a a lot about these other disciplines in the field. And most importantly, how to bridge them. See, and that's that, that, first of all, that's just important methodologically to answer your question. Right. So being the cognitive scientist means that I have to learn the language and the subcultures. Each one of these disciplines has its own ontology. Like the neuroscientist talks about the mind as the brain and does fMRIs, and the cognitive psychologist talks about it in behavior, runs experiments and stats. The linguist looks at language and sentence structure, and the, and the, machi- the artificial intelligence person tries to actually make machines, right? And the anthropologist goes and studies distributed cognition through, you know, they all are talking about what looks like the same thing, but they're all talking about it in fundamentally different ways. What's cognition? And so as a cognitive scientist, Right. I have I I I need to become well versed in that discipline that has always tried to create the bridging understanding for our culture, which is called philosophy. So right away, right, as a cognitive scientist, as somebody born from the legacy of the cognitive revolution, I'm already in this project of of trying to understand the, the meaning within. I'm trying to get like what Gertz Gertz is talking about. I'm trying to find a bigger, bigger meta-meaning system so that the meanings in neuro science and in cognitive psychology, right, can all bridge together. Now, that's one point about the cognitive revolution, and that bridging project is exactly what you're asking me about, right? How do I bridge between the scientific worldview and the cultural existential languages and discourses and ways of being? So one way of of trying to legitimate my claim to perhaps having something to say is my very training in nature is about this bridging practice. And it's Mm -hmm. about trying to understand subcultures and build a a more overarching culture by which they can reintegrate and talk to each other. Now, the the cognitive revolution was born out of a a reaction to behaviorism. And behaviorism was we would study the mind only through measurable, observable stimulus and response. So I could measure the stimulus and I could measure the organism's behavior. And and David Beckett at one time calculated we did 100,000 hours of this. And, we, and we, learned, we learned some significant stuff about Pavlovian and operant conditioning, and that's valuable, but that's about as far as we could get. And, and the cognitive revolution was born out of this profoundly simple, but also profoundly important insight, that most organisms that have intelligence, most of the time do not respond to the physical property of the stimulus, right? So my, my, one of my examples. You can see the flame and that's a visual stimulus with has certain properties. Mm -hmm. You can smell the smoke. That's Mm -hmm. a different kind of stimulus, different physical stimulus totally. You can hear somebody say fire, totally different thing. And yet your behavior is the same. You run from the room. Mm -hmm. Why is the behavior the same even though the stimuli are so different? Well, it's because you don't respond directly to the physical stimulus you respond to its meaning. And what that means, well, I would argue, and this is part of my career, I would argue is you respond to the way in which all of those stimuli are equally relevant to you as a auto poetic embodied biological organism. And that's Mm -hmm. what the cognitive revolution turned towards. Now, initially for a very long time, and this has has a lot to do also with technology, the the model that we used thought of that meaning largely in terms of just propositional meaning because the model of the meaning-making machinery was a computational model. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that has large, I mean, that's still important, but because of the advent of neural networks and dynamical systems theory, and I won't get into the technical details, but there's been a progression to what's called third generation or 4E cognitive science, we now see that the computational model is not adequate because the meaning that organisms is, are make are making the meanings, are, and and this is where the word meaning might even trip us up a little bit, right? It, it's not it's not fundamentally or primarily propositional meaning. That's if not I, a I, couple to the world. Go ahead, you can make a mean because
0: this is I think uh, at least are uh, I got w- w- one of the deepest insights listening to, you, to to your series of of the meaning crisis. How we, because of our scientific paradigm, let's put it that way, have a yes. particular understanding of meaning that is uh, what you call propositional meaning there's yes. something which we are deeply conditioned uh, to think what meaning is yes. uh, in, in a cognitive sense, and the way you lay it out, and I think that's also related to this ecology of practices that you're promoting is yes. that it seems that science itself finds that this is in the end not the deepest layer of meaning. It's not that it's not meaning, but that the deeper layers of meaning that are not related to this propositional cognitive understanding of what it is, It is has more to do, use the word already with homing.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And that, that science is able to speak about maybe a cultural misunderstanding of ourselves, how we relate to meaning, uh, and that there is something that we can find where... Um, meaning comes from a very different place that is not coming uh, from our cognitive understanding of reality. That's all important. But there's something that comes much further in the way we are already related to our being in the world. That uh, was really the foundation where we can find meaning that, which would mean maybe we look at the wrong place for meaning.
1: Yes. In the way we are cultured in our culture. Totally. Uh, so yeah, we, we adopted um, this is a standard We We adopted sort of a Cartesian framework in which meaning is largely propositional. And the, and the, and the way you make meaning is by uh, you know, by finding the, the, uh, the logical relations between propositions uh, to come to argumentative conclusions. Um, and that's, a, that's what a program is. That's what a computer program is. And, and, and then we, and because of the significance of scientific theory uh, for explaining things, we thought that theory is our primary way of relating to the world. And so that, of course, translates back even into domains that are non-scientific. You get the increasing emphasis within religion, for example, of understanding religion as belief, because belief is our cognitive relationship to propositions. Or you see people understanding um, even politics as reducible to ideology and, and, the, and, and the promotion of a particular ideology uh, 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 as the conclusive truth of things. So that orientation has just become pervasive, profoundly pervasive. I think this is one of Heidegger's points about trying to return us to language. I, I think this is controversial, what I'm going to say, but I think I could <clears throat> make a good case for it <clears throat> with a lot of other people. That Heidegger's return to language is to try and get beyond the propositional aspects of language uh, and see what it is we're doing and how we are being within uh, language rather than just what we are proposing in language. That's what a proposition is: the way we're proposing things. And so, uh, I, I and I, what cognitive science is basically discovering is we we have deeper ways of uh, relating to the world, I want to. I want to. I want to do a. Li- I don't know if the play on word works in German, so I, I apologize if it doesn't. But I want to play a little bit on what you just said. Yeah, the homing, but there, there is a deep connection between the homing and our ability to home in on information, mm-hmm. and, and see, and 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 that thing that I just talked about, that ability to home in on information, that was something that the the, the computational project revealed was something that the computational approach fundamentally seemed incapable of giving us. And you're saying, what does it mean to home in? What it means is this. The amount of information to you available at, in the environment is combinatorially explosive. It's, it's indefinitely large. Mm-hmm. The, the, all the information, all the potential patterns, all the information in your working memory and the potential ways you can, no, in your long-term memory, sorry, and the ways you could potentially connect them also vast All the particular patterns of behavior you could generate, all the sequences of things you could do, right? And think about all the different things you do just to walk around and go to the store, right? The sequence, compared to the sequence when you play chess or you're swimming or you're making love or you're engaging in a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. That's also vast. And yet this is what everybody's doing right here, right now. They're homing in, they're zeroing in on the relevant information and they're foregrounding that and they're backgrounding the less irrelevant and they're ignoring the, what is sort of completely irrelevant, mm-hmm. but they can't, but they have to do that in a constantly self-correcting evolving manner because the relationship to the environment is a, that, that homing is a way of connecting, adaptively connecting to your environment. You're trying to like, Reed Montague, you put it really well. He said, the difference between us and computers is that if computers don't care about the information they're processing. We mm-hmm. care, so you're paying attention to me right now. Listen to the language. You're paying attention. You're devoting, right? Belieben. uh, You know. You know this. The, the original for, for belief originally meant to give your heart to mm-hmm. something, to love, to care about it, right? And and I'm not I'm not going romantic here. What I'm saying is, is the basic. We we are we are self making things, <clears throat> unlike unlike computers. We have to constantly, moment by moment, take care of ourselves. <clears throat> and that means we have to care about which information we are paying attention to. And we are constantly dynamically changing that. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're paying attention to me right now, they have to ch- pay attention to you, uh, et cetera, as things shift around. You,
0: you, you coined a word that uh, I, I, it seems is uh, very important for that. You, you coined a word of relevance realization. Yes, yes. And it seems to me uh, also this honing in that you are describing right now is the realization of relevance. Is yes. this conversation that we're having right now relevant? And this is a kind of a self correcting because it, it could be a meaningless conversation where we talk about yeah, right? yeah, yeah. A, But some conversations seem to be relevant, at, le- yeah. at least it, it appear to be relevant, which equals to, to be meaningful. That yes. I find this moment. Meaningful, there's something happening, and it seems that you find a way to describe in a very uh, down to earth realistic language through science how relevance realization, as you say, uh, builds itself in this autopoetic way. There is a mechanism that we can create, that we can train, there are that kind of ways of learning how meaningfulness can emerge by. Uh, paying attention to what is and looking for how every present moment can find its own meaningfulness by something is is this what we're doing right, right now relevant and how is it relevant? In finding the w- right ways to do this, something like meaning shows up.
1: Yes. Yeah. And,
0: and to the degree that meaning shows up, I also feel at home with the moment right now. There's something yeah. right. Yes. And that is a very interesting thing because it's not about metaphysics in that sense that uh, I have to hold have a certain metaphysics thing. That there is a God or there is no God. Uh, it doesn't really matter so much. It's, it's, it plays a part in it. But there's something independent of the metaphysics that I hold that uh, the world as I participate in seems to be relevant, uh, meaningful, something that I can care for, something I do care for. And there seem to be practices that allow this to be cultivated. And yes. the way I understand what you try to uh, investigate and also to, uh, to teach is how we can uh, together learn new and old ways to cultivate our being in the world so that our being here becomes relevant in, 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 in a way that is uh, auto-poetic. It's, it, we don't really know where it shows up. But we does uh, we are, we are, we are, it sh- that, that it does show up, and that is powerful
1: well th- thank you I mean and, and I like the invitation to being in the world and heidegger um, Heidegger uh, through Dreyfus you know Dreyfus's book being in the world right uh, 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 Heidegger's had a huge influence on fourth generation cognitive science. the two big influences on third generation 4 e cognitive science are The Heideggerian influence about trying to get what does this being in the world mean scientifically (laughs) um, and biology, that there is a deep continuity between how cognition is an adaptive autopoetic coupling to the world and biology is an autopoetic adaptive coupling to the world. So uh, there's a strong analogy between your relevance realization at a cognitive level and your biological adaptivity. And to say that you're adaptive is to not point to something in you. It's to fundamentally point to between something between an organism and its environment. The organi- And we increasingly, because we're cultural, we are not only shaped by the environment, we shape the environment to fit us. And adaptivity is a relation, a real relation uh, between the organism and the environment. Is the great white shark highly adaptive? In the ocean it is. In the Sahara Desert it dies right Adaptivity and then in the same way relevance that's why I, I use the word realization relevance isn't in your head it is between you and the world it's a way of being in the world it's a way in which you realize in both senses of the word it, it you it, it, like you, you come to an awareness of it but it is also being made real to you. you are making connections but always within within which connections, within which you find yourself i'm always finding myself connected to the world and that but also connecting to the world and Mm -hmm. i can't pull those apart i can't pull apart how i am always already connected and connecting right from my projects of making connections and seeing new connections i can i can realize how in fact how auto poetic the process is when i have moments of insight Mm -hmm. when i have those aha moments when I realize, mm-hmm. oh, I've misframed this. I'm looking at this in the wrong way mm-hmm. because I'm finding the wrong things salient. I'm misapprehending. I'm I'm judging this as relevant to my problem or situation, and it turns out it isn't. And in mm-hmm. those moments, you, and you do you do an insight? You go, oh, time for an insight. Let's go. That's not how it works. You don't compute an insight. An insight is something that emerges between you and the world in an auto poetic fashion.
0: I also very much like the way you phrased it when you said connected and connecting. Yeah, always, because because this process is not as understand it not a process that is arriving somewhere. It's a process that's endlessly opening up.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And yes. in that sense, I mean, you, you're describing many practices, but if we just for simplicity. Uh, hone in on on the the practice of uh, dialoguing. Uh, When when two or more people have a conversation, there are moments of this aha where something happens between people where you feel uh, this is meaningful right now. But this is in itself not an end point because you can see that maybe to some parts of other parts of the world that you're related to, this is not meaningful yet. Yet, so there's some opening up, some questioning, but there's a cascading investigation that if it's done in the right way, is an ongoing process of meaning opening up. And what is powerful about that, uh, the way I understand understand it, is that uh, this is a process uh, that uh, we can engage in, Mm -hmm. that process that, in fact, we always already know, and to the degree that we trust this process, there is also a relationship of arriving. Wow, this is a, this is an important moment right now, and this is an important relationship that we are holding. Maybe this is an important community. There's something, and yeah. Yeah. this is opening up, and it is an ongoing process that is finding itself as we are doing it, and that. Uh, ironically uh, seems to ongoingly uh, show up as being meaningful
1: well yeah, that's exactly it I, I mean uh, and that's what I mean by the strong uh, analogy to the biological evolution of adaptivity evolution doesn't mm-hmm. evolution isn't come evolution doesn't come to completion that, 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 that's that if people who think of evolution as a ladder or something coming into completion misunderstand it mm-hmm. Evol- what evolution is constantly doing is from found fittedness, re-engineering and redesigning new fittedness to the world from which uh, then again, new fit, fit. So we like, there's no final organism. There's no final model, right? Because reality is itself. The environment is constantly shifting what, so it's the connectedness. It's the, on, it's the ongoing continuity of contact, mm-hmm. right? And And this is, Right, that 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 open-ended evolution, like you said, we arrive, but we don't complete. We arrive, but we don't complete. What when when I sense like like when when we're in uh, dialogue, emergent dialogue, or what I call dialogos, right? We 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 get those moments, right, where we feel fundamentally connected to ourselves, fundamentally connected to other people and mm-hmm. fundamentally often connected to reality in a new way. We're seeing a new way of seeing and being. And we've saying, oh, I didn't know. And that's the beauty of it. And I mean, literally the beauty of it. I didn't know humans could live this way or I had forgotten that human, and it's Plato's sense of memory here. I had mm-hmm. forgotten that human beings could live that way. And this is what I mean by waking up. And what the research is showing is that those connections, that sense of connectedness, right? Not coming to some conclusion or completion, but that ongoing sense of connectedness. Those are the things that drive people to say, my life is worth it. My Mm -hmm. life is worth living, even in the face of the suffering and the problems. My life is meaningful enough. And this meaning in life is independent from pleasure, it's independent from socioeconomic contentment, it's independent from a sense of status and power, it's about this connectedness, and people, our culture makes us misjudge and misplace the quest for this connectedness in the wrong things, the things that the scientific research show do not give people meaning in life. It gives people power. It gives people wealth. It gives people socioeconomic contentment. If, if they're fortunate, I mean, it, there's justice issues and I'm not n- n- neglecting them. I'm talking about a, a different problem. I'm talking about the fact that those things ultimately will not give you meaning in life. Yeah. We need, we need ways of connecting that, are constantly adaptively evolving to our growth and the world's continual inexhaustible transformation mm-hmm. if we're going to get that continuity of contact like instead of trying to come to closure
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's there's a there, that meaning is much more about continuity of contact and I think <clears throat> and I think and I'm proposing that 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 gives us a different way of thinking about sacredness Good, to go back to Nietzsche. And uh,
0: this sacredness uh, is not in contrast to rationality. No. Because that's also something. uh, uh, I I used to think about uh, uh, those things in in terms of pre-rational, rational, rational, and trans-rational. But uh, listen to you, I'm kind of hesitating to use the word trans-rational because uh, you're proposing to basically have a deeper understanding of what rational is about and have yeah. a rational critique of our scientific understanding of rationality yeah. in yeah. Its, yeah. its limitation and rational just being uh, uh, really to, uh, to sense-making. Uh, and yeah. in in in, the, in in that way, there is uh, not a contradiction to our scientific uh, endeavor to understand and make rational uh, conclusions to the world and our meaning-making uh, procedures. Because we can have meaningful conversations that are deeply also scientific, and we have this deep sense that something is very meaningful in this. And if it's really deeply meaningful, I, for me, this equates the word sacred. Sacred. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. If, if you if you put away all metaphysical context of sacred and look from a phenomenological point of view, yeah. it, it 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 does not mean anything but being profoundly existentially meaningful. Yes. Yes. Something that brings to your knee because it's so meaningful. Uh, usually, people say it's sacred, and even if someone says that nothing is sacred to me, he has an understanding of that because otherwise you wouldn't be able to say the sentence. Uh, and there's there's something where I I get a glimpse how this uh, can evoke something like a religion without religion, yes. because it, because of the of the sacredness, and I also can see. How trying to practice this together and find ways of understanding that co create this together is a form of stealing the culture in the sense that it brings the culture out of this meaningless context that we have put it into, in the misunderstanding of the scientific process, in a sense, to put it to something that is flat. Uh, Uh, A flat form of instrumental uh, rationality that is not the whole rationality, what is about what rationality can be about. In that sense, what I see what you're proposing are practices that realize how meaning can emerge by authentically engaging with life in a meaningful way and how this can be something that can grow out of our scientific uh, modern enlightened world, it doesn't have to be opposed to it in some sense. Yeah. And and I find this very intriguing because I can see that this is, uh, you just see how this is not a regressive bag. We have to find some meaning somewhere where we lost it. It's also not kind of a new age idea that we have to have some new age idea what science has to be about. It's, it's, it's a, a very existential uh, uh, engaging with life and with each other in, in a way where we f- find the possibility that life, if we are open enough, shows deeper and deeper forms of meaning uh, in the way we can engage with it. And that seems to be something uh, that uh, is a different way than I've heard otherwise.
1: Wow, Thomas, you, I think you explained that better than I did. <laughs> so oh, thank you for that. That was beautiful um yeah i mean i i'm trying to recover what i would call a socratic sense of rationality um and where you know where it goes back to ratio or it goes back to logos i mean we get the word logic from Mm -hmm. logos and that's appropriate and one aspect of rationality is the logical but that's not what logos uh ultimately means logos means you know I, I, and I take the Heideggerian interpretation very seriously, to gather together so things belong together. Um, and what we know is that cognition, uh, like logical argumentative thought is is always in service of and emerges from and, and is dependent on um, what you might call logistical, if I can play with mm-hmm. that a little bit, cognition in which what you're, co- like what you, your reason depends, for example, on what you're paying attention to. And you can't reason your way into what you can pay attention to fundamentally. You can use reason to change what you pay attention to, but you're always dependent on attention running in a self-organizing fashion. Imagine if you had to, moment by moment, try to reason what you should pay attention to. You would be overwhelmed by a combinatorial explosion of information. You depend on the fact that things catch your attention, mm-hmm. right? Notice, notice how attention works. Notice, see the connecting and the connectedness. Things catch your attention, but you can also change how things are salient to you by deliberately paying attention. You can, can deliberately connect, but you're always doing that within an auto poetic being connected. That's and notice what's happening with your attention. You're listening to this lecture. Part of you, and this is like evolution. Part of you is selecting out of all the things you could pay attention to, but part of your attention wants to wander and drift. And mind wander and make and run off and make all kinds of associations. That's the variation. And notice what you're doing moment by moment. And you're not doing it. You're partially doing it, but you're partially finding yourself within it. You're participating in that this evolution of what you're paying attention to. And, te- and reason depends on what am I going to pay attention to when I categorize things? You can't reason your way into categories. This is what we've discovered, right? In AI. You have to you, you have to do this process of finding certain p- things relevant to each other in particular ways and how they're relevant to you. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to draw implications, the number of logical implications for any proposition, w- w- right, is, the, is its p- potential set to all other logically pop- possible propositions, which is combinatorially explosive. So when you make an inference, you pay attention, you care about some implications, not others, you use some categorizations, not others. Mm-hmm. This is what AI shows. Look, like the, the reason is not fundamentally about argumentation. That's part of it, the logic. What it is fundamentally about is what you see in the moment of insight. Rationality mm-hmm. is about systematically and reliably overcoming ways in mm-hmm. which we are self-deceptive. And here's the point. One more point. So, so mindfulness, for me, is a quintessentially rational project, just as much as log- logical argumentation. Because mm-hmm. as I just tried to show you, your attentional, how you pay attention, is has to do a, a lot with how you are connected to the world. And we deceive ourselves all the time within that, mach- that very adaptive machinery that makes us pay attention to some things, makes us ignore as irrelevant other things. And we are constantly, in moments of insight, realizing, oh, I I was deceiving myself. I Mm -hmm. was paying attention to the wrong thing. Mindfulness is about becoming systematically and reliably aware Mm -hmm. of how you self-deceive yourself Mm -hmm. with attention. It's as much a rational process as logical argumentation. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's situated somewhere different than argumentation. It's situated in attention. Exactly.
0: And one more thing that I learned from you, uh, is that the cultivation to really uh, do this in a way that uh, meaningfulness shows up, that basically you don't get to, that's what wisdom is about, period. Yes. And and, and you, you have this simple example that uh, a wise man relates to an adult man like an adult man relates to a child. It's, yes. And, and just to see that our wisdom traditions rare traditions where we were able to cultivate in different cultural contexts forms of wisdom where meaningfulness, or you can call it sacredness, can show up. Yes, and we have we have we are in a different metaphysical ontological uh, context where we where we can't relate to the world like we did in pre-modern times. There are th- things that have to be taken into account. But that does not mean that wisdom is impossible. And what you're suggesting is a, a co-creative uh, engagement uh, in a uh, ecology of practices that allows us to cultivate, uh, to focus on, on, on a relationship to life or relationships to life that allows meaningfulness and circuitness to show up. And there are... Uh, enormous amount of practices that are out there right now because there seems to be something also uh, really pushing for this. And this, again, this dealing the culture and the religion without religion seems to be the cultivation of wisdom in learning from all angles, from the old traditions, from new traditions, that there are ways where we can engage with each other and with life itself where we don't get lost, period.
1: Yeah, that's it. I mean, so I, 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 I often use one of the two purported etymologies of the word religion, religio, right? And that means to connect, to bind together. Um, and I do think that there is a way that can be homed within the scientific, cognitive scientific, especially worldview. Are ways of deeply cultivating wisdom. Wisdom is a hot topic in cognitive science. Just I, I was I was a, a co-author uh, by a paper. Uh, first authored by Igor Grossman, just in 2019, on a you know a high-impact journal on the you know the growing scientific consensus about what wisdom is. Wisdom can be, we can cultivate wisdom, and we can cultivate wisdom such that think about think about the wise person how you know they they are insightful they zero in on what's most important they care in the right way they know how to establish right relationships people that you find wise are capable of doing this in a profound and reliable way and that wisdom ultimately as you said enhances meaning in life like it is really possible right now to for the wise cultivation of the right relationship to sacredness that transforms individuals and groups of individuals in ways that they reliably find as deeply satisfying and deeply justifiable responses to the meaning crisis. That is available right now and it's happening. And it's not happening because of my work, it's happening because Human beings are evolving their adaptivity. And what I'm trying to do with my work is help them to understand better what they're doing, potentially improve it, not lose their way if, if, if possible, and also give them a, a lingua franca by which they can talk to each other, right? A, a scientific framework, you know, that is respectful and even reverential, for their practices, and so they can talk to each other and form communities of communities, do very much with each other, what cognitive science does with the various disciplines. That's what I'm most trying to do.
0: John, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Thomas. It was wonderful. Always wonderful. Thank you so very much. Thank you.